I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Welcome. I really do feel this is an astonishing novel. I'm going to tell you a secret. I read loads of books and I love a lot of books. I so rarely finish a book without thinking, that was so good, but, you know, chapter eight should have been moved to here or it would have been better without the subplot about that or whatever. I finished this book, I closed it, I thought, that is a flawless novel. It's a very rare thing to think, so it's a great privilege to be here with its author. Could you sort of start us off perhaps by talking about the inspiration behind the novel? How did it first come to you? Well, first, thank you for that kind introduction, and thanks all of you for coming out. I know that it's a weekday, you've got lots of things to do, and so I appreciate seeing all of you here. Let's see, the inspiration for this novel. I started writing this novel, I knew that I wanted to write a story that my, other, my earlier books kind of all are mining my autobiography. And I decided that for my fourth novel, it was time for me to reach out and kind of engage the world in a different way. And I wanted to write something about the issues around incarceration in the U.S. And so I wrote a grant application to go to Harvard University to do research at their libraries. And I went and I researched and I learned a lot about incarceration. I learned the kind of statistics that'll keep you up at night. I read heartbreaking stories about people who have been wrongfully accused, but I was angry, I was outraged, I was a lot of things, but I wasn't inspired because I didn't have a story, I'm a storyteller. And I didn't know what I was going to do. The people at Harvard, they wanted me to give a presentation of my work. I had been working, but I didn't have any work to show. All I had were like, like a stack of like really angry index cards. <laughs> and I was really worried and I went home to Atlanta where I'm from to visit my mother, which is something I do when I have things on my mind. And while I was in Atlanta, I went to the mall to do a little shopping, which is something else that I do when I have things on my mind. And while I was in the mall, I went down to the food court for a little snack, which also helps <laughs> things on my mind. And when I was down there, I saw a couple and the woman was beautifully dressed. The man, he looked fine, but she looked fantastic. And this is, this is why I noticed them. And they were in love and in trouble. And I heard her say, clear as a bell, she said, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And I looked at him, I looked at her, they looked at me, and I felt like we all knew that he would not have waited on her for seven years. But then he kind of pushed back against the table and said to her, and possibly to me, he said, I don't know what you're talking about because this wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. And I thought he was right as well. And for me, I know I have a novel when I have a situation where the characters disagree, but nobody's wrong. And I decided to write a novel about a couple separated by a wrongful conviction. Because for me, also when you write a novel, you need to come from a place of moral ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And when I was writing about wrong, when I was thinking about writing about wrongful imprisonment, there's no moral ambiguity. They call it wrongful imprisonment because it's wrong. Mm -hmm. So what's there to argue about? What's there to say? But when it came down to what would happen in this marriage, what should happen in this marriage, I didn't know that answer. And that gave me a question toward which I could write. Mm -hmm. And the manner in which the wrongful conviction happens, the nature of the offence, was that something that you thought about and considered how to do that? 
Well, I needed a crime that you could be convicted on based more so on people's impression of you more so than um, different kinds of evidence. Mm -hmm. I was worried about the fact that he was wrongfully convicted of a rape because of all the historical baggage with the question. This was a question throughout. I was afraid that I was afraid that I would write the story in such a way that we would relitigate the crimes of the past and not be able to focus on the characters in their modern day situation. And I think that's why I go the procedural parts of it I go by very quickly because mm -hmm. I didn't want to end up I didn't want to make it also feel like a story about the police. Mm -hmm or a procedural, because I feel like, I think that we've been weirdly brainwashed by how much entertainment involves the police. So, so many TV shows, it's all about the police and how they ultimately find the bad guy. And then they, it's, I think the way that it brainwashes us is that it makes us believe that the police are fundamentally right and given enough time, they will do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And then all is well. And it just gives us this false trust. I feel like Television has made us believe that the police have all this state-of-the-art um, equipment. You know, you watch TV, they'll have like the CCTV, and they'll say, zoom in on that. And, like, <laughs> and then they can see and they know definitively who mm -hmm. it is. And it's not even like that mm -hmm. in real life. So I was really wanted to not lean on that part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, the reader is never any doubt, and this is all, um, I don't like to give away too many spoilers in books, but this is all at the beginning. The reader is never in any doubt, because Celestial is never in any doubt that he is innocent. Some readers, though, like they email me and they say, you know, my book group thinks he did it. <laughs> I feel like I distinctly told you on the back of the book he didn't do it. Yeah. I told you on this page. But I think that, though, also goes to... Um, one of the points that Roy makes that once you're wrongfully accused, what, just being accused opens the question as to whether or not you're guilty. Yeah. And so much of the, the drama, I suppose, the heartbreak of the book is because he has been feeling pretty good about himself and his life, hasn't he? He seems to, yeah, he feels like he is you know, enjoying class mobility. Yeah. He's the first person in his family to go to university. He's met this woman and she's from a different class than he is and he feels like he's he feels like he's moving up like he has everything. And but I will say it was important to me that they not be a perfect couple. Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be like those television shows that say they had everything. They were young, beautiful, and <laughs> you know, they're not a perfect couple. Like he's a a little bit, a mm. little bit of a cheater. Not like a lot of a cheater. Yeah. <laughs> small, small bit of a cheater. I mean, but they have problems in their relationship like anyone would have. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to make it seem like they were earning our sympathy through their love story. I feel like they should earn our sympathy just by virtue of their humanity. Yeah, I really enjoy, I mean, I, I love the language in it as well. And as an English person, I haven't come across this before. Perhaps you could explain for us. Um, he likes the idea of being able to sit his wife down. Yeah, that's an old-fashioned expression from probably my parents' generation that, you know, that he would marry, like his wife would be working when he married her, and because of his success, she wouldn't have to work anymore. He could just sit her down, yeah. is the expression. That was sweet and old-fashioned. I think fashioned. that, it's, and it's also, it's not... And, the way we look at it, usually the idea that his wife wouldn't have to work, she could sit sit down. We bristle at it now. But if you think about the type of work that someone in, say, my grandmother's generation had to do, it would be a generosity that she not have to do that work. Like my grandmother cleaned people's houses. Mm -hmm. So for my grandfather's father to say that his fantasy is that he could sit her down and she wouldn't have to work, that's entirely different than if, say, your wife is a media executive and you don't like the idea of her success. Yeah. You know, it's really, I think class really informs the way that that experience would, would mm -hmm. manifest. But that's his idea that he wants to sit her down. He wants to sit her down so that she can be an artist, so mm -hmm. she doesn't have to do a nine to five, so that she can follow her dream. Mm -hmm. Would you read a little bit for us? Okay, okay. This is... Um, Kind of a moment when, right when Roy is sentenced on the day of his, the day of his trial. What I know is this, 
They didn't believe me. Twelve people and not one of them took me at my word. There in the front of the room, I explained that Roy couldn't have raped the woman in room 206 because we had been together. I told them about the magic fingers that wouldn't work, about the movie that played on the snowy television. The prosecutor asked me what we had been fighting about. Rattled, I looked to Roy and to both our mothers. Banks objected, so I didn't have to answer, but the pause made it appear that I was concealing something rotten at the pit of our very young marriage. Even before I stepped down from the witness stand, I knew that I had failed him. Maybe I wasn't appealing enough, not dramatic enough, too not from around here. Who knows? Uncle Banks coaching me said, now is not the time to be articulate. Now is the time to give it up. No filter, all heart. No matter what you're asked, what you want the jury to see is why you married him. I tried, but I didn't know how to be anything other than well-spoken in front of strangers. I wish I could have brought a selection of my art, all images of Roy. I would say, this is who he is to me. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he gentle? But all I had were words which are light and flimsy as air. As I took my seat, not even the black lady juror would look at me. It turns out that I watched too much television. I was expecting a scientist to come and testify about DNA. I was waiting for a pair of handsome detectives to burst into the courtroom at the last minute, whispering something urgent. Everyone would see that this was a big mistake, a major misunderstanding. We would all be shaken but appeased. I fully believed that I would leave the courtroom with my husband beside me. Secure in our home, we would tell people how no black man was really safe in America. But 12 years is what they gave him. We would be 43 when he was released. Roy understood that 12 years was an eternity because he sobbed right there at the defendant's table. His knees gave way and he fell into his chair. The judge paused and demanded that Roy bear this news on his feet. He stood again and cried, not like a baby, but in a way that only a grown man can cry from the bottom of his feet, up through his torso, and finally through his lips. As Roy howled, my fingers kept worrying a rough patch of skin beneath my chin, a souvenir of scar tissue. When they did what I remember as kicking in the door, what everyone else remembers as opening it with the key, after the door was open, however it was open, we were both pulled from the bed. They dragged Roy into the parking lot, and I followed, lunging for him, wearing nothing but a white slip. Someone pushed me to the ground, and my chin hit the pavement. My slip rode up, showing everything to everyone, and my tooth sank into the soft skin of my bottom lip. Roy was on the asphalt beside me, barely beyond my grasp, speaking words that didn't reach my ears. I don't know how long we lay there, parallel like burial plots. Husband, wife, what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. Thank you. Can we talk about the form of the novel? I think you tried a couple of ways into it. Well, it was really the big question for me was point of view. I think point of view is the most important question of any, any story you're told, whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction, even when you watch the news, the point of view that's taken affects the way you understand the story. So I originally wanted to write the story only about Celestial, the wife. I was very interested in the idea of a young woman, ambitious and artist, and her husband, this terrible thing happens to her husband. What does she do? How does that affect her decisions about life? Does she still have a right to her career and her dreams in the face of her husband's challenges? Or does his trouble, you know, does that invalidate any dreams she may have? Like, her, are her dreams a luxury that cannot be afforded in the face of his suffering? So I wrote the entire book from beginning to end from her point of view. And I liked it, but it was something that was not quite right about it. And everyone kept saying, what about her husband? What about her husband? What about what's happening to him? We want to know more about him. And then I got kind of defensive because I felt like, are you saying that her story doesn't count unless we know his story? And so I, I kind of got my hackles up and I just had so much pressure and I decided to stop being stubborn. <laughs> and I decided to try and write the story from beginning to end from his point of view. And I was able to write that so quickly. And I was very suspicious as to why I was able to write it so quickly. Now, there's some people who think that writing a novel should be like love, and if it's right, it should, you know, it should happen very fast. <laughs> but I believe that writing a novel is like love, and it happens really fast. 
you need to take a second look. <laughs> and I realized that it was so easy to write because his story was a story I already knew. You know, a man against the system. You know, he's a good man. He never did anything substantial to hurt anyone. And the system has come down on him like a ton of bricks. And all he wants is a faithful wife and like a clean house. You know, this, I know this story because it's an old story. It's the story that's in the Odyssey, really. Mm -hmm. And the Odyssey was written in 70 BC, I think, something like that. And I realized that was the conflict of the story that I have a modern couple and he wants a 70 BC model of a wife. And that's the nature of, of their conflict. So I said, okay, I write it from his point of view, her point of view. And I felt like that was going really well, toggling them, except Roy was feeling boxed in as a character because, because like his problem is so historical, he started feeling symbolic Mm -hmm. like overly representative Mm -hmm. like every time he did something i felt like i heard a voice over my shoulder saying so what are you saying about this the situation of the black man Mm -hmm. and he couldn't be himself because everything he did was so heavy and weighted i mean i think it's an experience a lot of us have had in real life when you feel like you're representing something more than yourself even if it's just a situation where you felt you're representing your family You couldn't be yourself because everyone's reputation is on your shoulders. So I decided to add a voice of a third man, a second, third character, a second man. She doesn't like spoilers. I don't like spoilers. This is, it's not a spoiler. Anyway, it's your book, it's your rules. (laughs) Because it won't be spoiled. It will be illuminated. This is an illumination. I add, um, Celestial has another man. His name is Andre. And I allowed Andre to tell part of the story, too. But by having the two men together, it gave each of them more room because they neither one of them was the one. Mm-hmm. And so I had my three characters, and I was going along fine. I really liked the way the story was coming together. And I got stranded 50 pages from the end for a year. A year. It was like... Me and the book were in a relationship. We had broken up, but we could not afford to move out. So we just had to live there. It was as though the book was sleeping on a couch. I would wake up in the morning. I would see the book. It wouldn't speak to me. I wouldn't speak to it. I couldn't bring a new book home because this book was on the couch. And I realized that the reason I couldn't finish the book is that I was allowing Roy, the character, to tell me what the book is about. Mm-hmm. Roy believes the book, the story, is about what he has lost and who can return to him the things he's lost. Mm-hmm. He feels like because of his car- incarceration, he's not wrong. He thinks he's lost his job, his car, you know, his house, his position, his marriage. He's, he wants everyone to give him these things back. And he's going to all the characters saying... Well, help mm. you, help, how can you help me get what I've lost? Mm-hmm. He thinks that's the moral measure of each person. And he had me kind of convinced. And so I thought the question of the book is who is going to come through for him. But I realized the thing he really lost was his understanding of himself as a person who has something to contribute to the relationships that he's in, not just his relationship with his wife, but with his family. Mm-hmm. And that is what he had to learn to move forward. And when I realized that, I finished the book in about five days. And I could have finished it faster, but I write on old-fashioned typewriters, and I ran out of ribbon, and it took me (laughs) a long time to find the other ribbon. And without actually doing a big spoiler, note to myself, you can do what you like, it's your book. But um, I did think, so I'm enjoying the novel so much, I'm reading the novel, it's just so brilliant, it's so brilliant. Every so often it popping in my head, how on earth is this going to come to some kind of an ending? How on earth is that going to happen? And then, of course, I mean, you bring it home magnificently. Did you, I mean, obviously there was that delay, and then it just all became clear and you knew what you were going to do and you wrote it down. It just, once I realised it, it was, it just was so clear. But I had to wait, and this is really part of why I really believe in writers having a day job, mm. because I was not—I did not need to publish this book in order to just take care of myself. So the fact that it was, by this point, it's like four years overdue, mm. it was embarrassing. 
but it was not an existential crisis for mm -hmm. me so that I could wait as long as I needed to wait for the answer to reveal itself. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I thought I wasn't going to be able to complete the book. I was saving um, the money to return the advance. I mean, it wasn't a lot of money, but I had spent it. And I was, you know, so I was just like saving, you know, no more brunch, you know, no more Uber, just saving my money because I thought I couldn't finish the book. And I would prefer not to publish a book than publish the wrong book. Mm. Um, some of the books told in letters, which I really enjoyed. Was that something that came quite early on? I like letters. Mm -hmm. I like letters in real life. Mm -hmm. I write letters all the time. I write about four or five letters a week to really ungrateful people who do not write me back. <laughs> not even my mother. I write my mother a letter every Sunday and every Tuesday or Wednesday when she gets it, she sends me a text message. Got your letter, glad you're fine. That's, that's, that's my mother. But I enjoy letter writing and I enjoy epistolary novels. Mm -hmm. But prison is the only context in which you can write a modern novel mm -hmm. where the epistolary form doesn't seem forced. Because people in prison, they value letters so much. The first time I wrote to someone in prison, I received a letter at my job from someone who was in prison. And I went and I spoke to the poet, um, American poet, Nikki Giovanni. And I said, oh my goodness, Nikki, I got this letter from this person in prison. How does, how does he know where I work? And she said, has your picture appeared lately in a magazine? And I said, yes. She said, well, that's what it is. She said, that's when you start getting these letters. They see your photograph and they write to you. They, they research you, see where you work, and they send the letter. And I said, well, what am I going to do? And she said, you're going to write them back because prisoners work for pennies an hour and he has to buy that paper. He has to buy that envelope. He has to buy that stamp. He may have had to work two days in order to amass the resources to write you that letter and you will write him back. Even if it's just a card to say, thank you for your letter. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. And so I did. And I started having pen pal relationships with people. I have a number of pen pals who are incarcerated. And the letters, the letters mean a lot. And they write back and they like, like when you get a letter from a prisoner, the entire page is covered because they have to buy the paper. So they'll write some. And if the paper isn't finished, they'll hold off for a few days until they have something else to say, until they get to the end of the page. They write all the way to the margin from the top to the bottom. So that was one thing that was on my mind. But also, prison is brutality and monotony. Mm -hmm. And so to cover the time and worries in prison, I needed a way to cover that time without exposing you as a reader or me as a writer to brutality and monotony. And so with the letters, he curates his experiences for his wife. We only know what he wants her to know. So in shielding her, he shields us. And I felt like I was able to get through that time mm -hmm. and also do it very quickly. Prison is the least interesting part of this book for me. So he's out of prison. He's out of prison by page like 94 mm -hmm. because the real work of the story was the relationships. Um, I also thought it was so fascinating because I've always been fascinated by those news stories when someone has been wrongfully convicted and then that conviction is overturned. And then quite often you see a press photograph of the people on the outside the prison. Their friends have come and met them. There might be some popping corks. And I've always thought, but what, what happens next? How do they, even though they're no longer judged guilty, how do they pick that back up? And so that's what happens then, isn't it? He tries to pick it back up. You, they try, but you know, you can never pick it back up. Relationships, regardless of why relationships are interrupted, that interruption is real. And you can't pick any relationship up where it left off. You have to figure out a new way forward. Most people who have their convictions overturned, there's no fanfare, their conviction is vacated. Very few people are actually exonerated in the way that we think of people being exonerated, where the courts admit that they did something wrong and they pay a, you know, they pay a restitution. Most of the time, either they get time served. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they come up to the person and they say, you know, a kind um, judge or something has ruled that something is hinky there. And they'll say, you can get out next month on time served, or you can go back to trial with the new evidence and, tr and hopefully get, um, you know, an innocent. Mm -hmm. What is the word I want to say? Not decree, but be found innocent. 
But most people, if someone told you, you can leave tomorrow or you can go back to trial, most people just leave tomorrow. And when you leave tomorrow, you get nothing. A lot of times the people aren't even technically innocent on paper. Again, TV really misleads us and makes us feel like the courts are more efficient and fair and generous than they are. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about time in the novel? I was interested in this because there is, there's mobile phones and emails a bit, but I felt, is this true, that you were intentionally not giving us sort of clues that would situate us in a time kind of politically or a specific year? Well, I hate technology and stories. Mm. And I think it's because of my age. I didn't grow up reading stories with technology in them and I don't exactly know how to use technology in a story. Like, if I put a text message in it, even though I text message people, a text message in a story looks... I don't have to worry about this. Yeah. It's just kind of weird to me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think younger people, because text messages are part of their understanding of narrative, will use them. And also, I feel like technology is ruining the best plots. Mm. Think about it. Yeah. Romeo and Juliet, none of that would have happened. <laughs> if someone could have just sent a quick text message, not dead, LOL. Yeah. <laughs> so it gave me some challenges narratively. Like there's a time when I needed Celestial and Andre not to be in touch. Now, even when I, when I was growing up, when you couldn't reach, when you call someone, you couldn't reach them, you would say they're not home because they had to be home because home is where the phone is. Now, if you can't reach someone, it means they're deliberately not answering you, which is a very different type of problem. So I had to figure out, well, why wouldn't they talk? And I didn't want to do something silly like, oops, I dropped my phone in the toilet. You know, I didn't want to get rid of his cell phone for the purpose of them mm -hmm. not talking. So I had to figure out a reason why he would not call her. And that took, it took more character development work than I would have had to do in the story set, say 20 years ago. But I also, as far as politics, I wanted to avoid Obama mm -hmm. in the story. So in my mind, the story is set two years before Obama. I needed Obama not even to be running for president because I feel like when Obama was president or running for president, everything a black person did in the United States was in through the lens of the fact that there's a black president. If something bad happened to you, it's ironic. Like, oh my goodness, there's a black man in the White House, you know, yet this terrible thing has happened to you. Or even this like small bad thing has happened to you. Like, like you lose your job. It's like, isn't it ironic that there's a black man in the White House and I've lost my job? Mm -hmm. Isn't it ironic there's a black man in the White House and I've lost my watch? You know, like whatever it was, everything <laughs> was through that lens. So if I was writing a novel about a black man being wrongfully incarcerated and then Obama was in there, it would be like in the age of Obama. Also, I felt we were too close to the age of Obama. Like when I was writing this, Obama was in the White House. What happened later had not happened. That thing that's happening across town. <laughs> Even the fact of the thing that happened makes us understand the Obama years differently mm. than we did when I was writing it. So not knowing what was going to happen in the future. I didn't want my book to feel naive mm -hmm. or precious because 10 years from now, readers would know, say, oh, isn't that sad? She wrote that without knowing about mm. whatever happens next. So I wanted to move it up in history some, just a few years, because mm -hmm. I felt like I had a grip on the year 2005. Like mm -hmm. I felt writing it, you know, five or five years later, that I knew what 2005 was. Mm -hmm. Talking of uh, Obama, I think he likes your book, doesn't he? He does. He does. <laughs> <laughs> Is that pretty cool? It was, it was, you know, it was wonderful 
to get to get on his summer list because when you're a writer, as you know, there are a lot of milestones and things we celebrate in the writing world that other people in your life do not know what that is. They just don't know. And so you tell them, like, you're like, oh, I won an award from Penn. And they're like, oh, it must have been a good pen. Can I see it? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, they don't know. And so you feel like you're working in this kind of illegible space. But when Obama, like my father, my father is a political scientist. He's a tough guy. My father was impressed. Like he was actually visibly chuffed. Yeah. And it, it felt good to be acknowledged in that way. It was just, it was just really fantastic. I got to meet him. Oh. I know. This is <laughs> I would say that one of the morals of the story of this book is that you should always answer block calls. Because I have two block calls. You want both of them? Here's the first one. I was driving my car minding my business, singing along a little bit, and the phone rang, and it was a blocked call. I answer blocked calls because I am a curious person. <laughs> Who blocked the call? Why did they block the call? So, hello? And the person on the other side said, hey, it's Oprah. <laughs> and I said, yes, ma'am? And then I, I pulled the car over, and she said she wanted to use the book for her book club. And what did I think about that? Yeah. I said, I think that would be very nice. <laughs> and I said, thank you. And then she was, you know, she was talking, she was telling me why. And I'm, imagine I'm on the side of the road. Oprah is talking through the speakers of my car. <laughs> People are knocking on my window, asking me for money. They're like telling me to roll down the window, asking for money. I'm shooing them away. Oprah is talking. It was a lot. And then I had to keep it secret for five months. Oh. That's a long time to keep the biggest secret. People would call me and say, how are things going with the book? And I would say, oh, I'm hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> and the other time I received the block call, well, the next time I saw a block call, now I answered them eagerly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the, um, the offices for the Obamas inviting me in about seven or eight other women to come and talk to Mrs. Obama about her book before it came out. She wanted to talk about how she could, you know, what, as though we could help, but as, you know, about getting the word out and talking about the themes. I think kind of practicing, you know, book tour questions. We were like a book club for her. But he, um, he at the end, after we did our thing, he came in the room and he, he complimented the book. He said, I can't tell you exactly what he said because it's a spoiler. He asked about that particular yeah. plot point. There's a juicy one about halfway through. That's all we'll say. Yeah. But he came in and he said that he enjoyed the book. And then he said, you know, I read the book this summer. He said, Michelle, she just read it a couple couple months ago. And she said, well, I was working on my own book. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'm just saying, I'm the one that brought it in the house. <laughs> Hefty, difficult, distressing material in this book. And yet, the tone, there is hope, there is balance, and I was trying to work out why that is. I think one of the reasons why that is, is because there's so much love in the book. Well, thank you. And I feel like when you write about a topic like wrongful incarceration, which is such an outrage and such an offense against you know humanity, there is an impulse to layer it on because you so want a readership to understand how serious this problem is. But I often think of the people who may be reading the book for whom this is an experience they've lived through in some way. They have a loved one who's incarcerated, or even people who are incarcerated. How, what a disservice you do to them to write a book where there is no possible way forward to them, for them. It may be helpful to use the book as a piece of activism to make it as dark as possible so that other people will feel motivated to act, but it's at the expense of the readers who know that experience. Also, I feel like if you have your characters having a full range of human emotion, there will be hope. There will be a certain lightness in places. There'll be love and there will also be humor. Mm -hmm. There are about five different fathers in this book. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, I think this is a universal fact that fathers are all under the impression that they are funny. Like, <laughs> my father is convinced. My father thinks he's hilarious. Like fathers think they're funny. And so with five fathers in the book, there are, you know, there's like weird advice. There's, um, you know, there's humor. There's just predicaments and things too. They just, I feel it's like, 
it's like you know when you're whipping an egg you just put you put air in it it's still an egg but you've whipped it and it's just fluffier mm -hmm. right yeah um who would like to ask a question thank you for coming today it's just amazing to hear you're a big big fan of your work um i remember reading on twitter that you said that a lot of people had very strong responses to Celestial's character um, and disliked her. <laughs> um, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, there are some people that really, really hate my character, Celestial. And it hurts, first it hurts my feelings because, you know, I invented her and I, I think, and also she and I have quite a bit in common and it hurts my feelings when people really dislike her, but I think it's because of what I call um, the tyranny of genre expectation. When you say, I've written a novel and it's about a woman and her husband is wrongfully accused, you say, oh, this is one woman's brave fight to free her man. Like, that's just what you expect. And when it's not that, there's, it's, it's like jarring. And also, I think we are socialized to value women to the extent to which they can sacrifice extent to which they're in service to others. And so when I didn't build her character around that, it's just, people just get really, really, some people get really mad. There was a book club in Los Angeles. They came to blows. I was like, ladies, 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 ladies. Yeah, no, it was really, but it was just the idea of it. Like the, I, just the concept of it is just galling to some people. But I think that meaningful conversations will be uncomfortable. And so I think that it's ultimately a good thing, but it, it it hurts my feelings a little bit, or it makes me feel like maybe if I had written it differently, they would have felt more compassion for her. And I also think there's a lot of a lot of pressure on women writers, women characters, and women people to be this word they use, likable. We see when people talk about it with politicians, like this idea that you need to feel like the person is offering you a slice of cake. And I don't think that's a fair way to assess writers, books, characters, or people. Hi, I'm a fellow American. Hello. I'm super excited um, to meet you because you, we, your book was our book club choice um, a month ago or so. And, How'd um, it go? It was fabulous. It was fabulous. It really was. <laughs> um, you know, we had a few questions that I don't know that I want to ask because we're not supposed to spoil. but. Um, one thing that after listening to you, I just was wondering, when you took the year to finish the ending, did you write any alternative endings that you know you kind of played with? And um, or how many alternative endings did you write? And when you said it, it makes me feel like you didn't you didn't like my ending. No, 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 no. I did, but I just wondered in that year. Says, oh, that's what you're wearing. No, 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 no. I just, as a, as a writer. No, as a writer and as a reader, I just, you know, after listening that it, it did take you a year. I would never have guessed that after reading the book. But, you know, did, was it something that you, you toyed with? Were there alternatives and, and different scenarios that you played with? You know, there were times before what ended up being the end when I was when I was stuck and couldn't go any further. I was looking back through about the last 50 pages of that saying, maybe this is the end. Maybe it could just end right here. Because, you know, a story can end anywhere. Like, just you can make the tone and make it the end. Like, you know, the story can end when he walks in the door. The story can end when he walks out of the door. The story can end. So I was like, maybe, he can end, maybe I can end it here. Maybe I can end it there. But I knew in my heart those were not actually the end of the story. But once it became clear... Because I was, when I was stuck at that 50 pages, I could not go another word forward. And I think part of the reason why the writing is as strong as it is, is that when I couldn't go forward, I would just go back and improve what I had already written. So at least I could feel like I was doing something. Hi there. So I um, listened to the book rather than read it by paper. It's an amazing audio book. Um, and you were saying that you wrote the book as you wanted to write it. Did you ever get pressure to enhance it in any way so you know add a character or enhance like maybe the father figure of um roy or anything like that or did you just stick true to what you wanted to write um i i mostly had pressure to make it more overtly about racism because i do think there's a lot of pressure particularly on black writers that your work should be half art half sociology and there were i mean i was even advised um, by an editor, she said, well, maybe you could put some more 
Black Lives Matter in the book. Like, I have some Black Lives Matter here in my bag. <laughs> and that was, that, that was very frustrating to me to be, because I just felt like I was coming up against these expectations of what this book should be about. Because also, I sold the book, I got the book contract on the idea and writing about a woman whose husband is, is incarcerated. So they were expecting that book. So what I had to do was stop showing, and also my friends, my friends, like my actual friends, everyone, they were just so shaken up by, people would say, well, maybe you can make him guilty, because then if he's guilty, it gives her more room to, mm. be, to be free to have other decisions. If he's guilty, as though, as though her, that her ownership of her own life, like he has to forfeit his ownership of her life for her to have her life back. And I would say, are you trying to say that he has to forfeit her life for her to have her life? And people would say, oh, you're just too intense. But that's what they were, <laughs> but that's what's implied in that. And so I feel like when you write a book with an unusual plot and it's not finished, it's not tight, it's not good yet, it's not, it's not as good as you can make it, people's reaction is to tell you to make it more conventional. They say something's wrong with this, and something is wrong with it, but they think the solution is to make it more, more conventional. And that was hard. And, but now that it's done, some people say, oh, she, needs, she should have more friends. But I felt like there's a lot of people in this book already. And I just didn't see how I could add more people. I mean, you can, a book can get overpopulated. And so I just said, she's, she got enough, there are enough people in the book, I think. But Andre used to have a girlfriend. Yeah, she was nice, but she was... I don't know. I felt like she was taking up space, and also there were, and I felt like there were too many people cheating on people. I felt like I felt like we were having too many versions of the same conversation. So I had to decide whose version of that conversation was the least interesting, and then that person had to go. Ruthless. I love it. Thank you for the great question. And then I think you had one over here. Having read your previous three books, all of them, and I haven't read this one yet. I have to confess. <laughs> What was your writing style? Because it kind of reminds me of like if Bill Street could talk, and then we've got the Ava DuVernay, um, if they can see us, is it if they can see us? Yeah. yeah, out now, which talks about when they see us, when they, when see, they see us, yeah. yeah, which talks about wrongful conviction, and then also with if Bill Street could talk, what happened there? I just wanted to just ask you about your kind of your writing style, and if those things like the Central Park Five or Baldwin came into your mind at all. Um, Baldwin definitely was in my mind because I read If Beale Street Could Talk when I was in high school and I feel like I was a young woman then and I thought it was romantic and, and I knew nothing about at that when I read I must have been 15 or 16 you know so this idea this romance was in my mind and I was like romantic about people having babies you know like all these kinds of things and I felt like If Beale Street Could Talk jived with my understanding of life as a young person but when I read it again as an older person, I realized that Baldwin really had not considered the idea of um, female independence, autonomy, ambition, etc. Her virtue is in her suffering. Like that is such an old model, but it's really the way, it's the way, it's what, this is the role we think women have in the struggle is to support men in crisis. And I was interested in what other ways, first off, what other ways are there to support men in crisis besides um, through you know, chastity and sexual fidelity? Like, like when people say a woman is not loyal, they're talking about chastity and sexual fidelity. But is that the only way one can be loyal? Is that the only way a person can support? So I did consider myself kind of interrogating that old plot and looking, and I do think that it's really good. There's so many conversations right now about this topic, so that no one artist feels like they have to get, they have to write the official story, the official line about it. I have not seen the Ava DuVernay. Um, it was released since I've been here, but I have I have met a couple of those guys, and it is you know it's just heartbreaking. They were framed. Those kids were framed. They were they were locked up as kids. And, and they'll never get the time back. No matter how much money they get, they can't buy back. Yeah, they can't buy back their childhood. You know, no amount of money will give them back their childhood. Hi, um, firstly, thank, um, congratulations on such a wonderful novel and um, the endorsements that you've received. Um, for me, I, um, 
took, uh, well, found a lot of wisdom and lessons in the book. And um, I wondered if they were intentional and if so, if they were lessons without getting too personal that were passed on to you or that you um, had learned yourself? I mean, I do think there's a lot of, there are a lot of people giving advice in this yeah. book and some of it is better than others. <laughs> um, some of the advice given in the book are things that I wish someone had said to me more than things. I don't think, I didn't get very, very good life advice when I was coming up. I think that's a very big part of the generation gap is that, if you know, I was born in 1970, which means that my parents were born during the Jim Crow era. And they were in this, I grew up in the urban South. I grew up in Atlanta, a major city. My parents grew up in small Southern towns and just their understanding of what life should be is so different. This is not exactly what you're asking me, but I think it'll vibe with it. Like when I wanted to become a writer, I wanted to go to school to, to study creative writing. My parents thought this is the most ridiculous thing they had ever heard in their life. My mother said, this is like getting a degree in basketball. She said, if you're a good basketball player, dear, no one is going to inquire as to whether or not you have a credential. And she said, if you have a credential and you are not a good player, you will not be drafted. So the credential is irrelevant, she said. And I felt that, no, I wanted to do, I wanted to study what I wanted to do. I wanted to study it. They wanted me to get a PhD. And they were like, you can write on the weekend. And I even went to a PhD program, but I felt like I was a bird and I was being trained to be a bird watcher. And then finally, my father was so frustrated with me. He said, your problem is that you never had to pick cotton. And I said, well, daddy, for me, that's not a problem exactly. And he said, when you pick cotton, you don't go out there and look at the cotton plants and say, I don't feel challenged by this cotton. He said, you don't say, oh, you know, this cotton field does not recognize my complexity. I fear this is not my niche. He said, you just go there and you pick the damn cotton. And I was so, I was hurt. I felt so misunderstood because he felt that wanting, for me wanting to be an artist was kind of throwing and throwing back in his face all the sacrifice that I had become like spoiled and lazy and didn't understand work. But I had to make him understand that the fact that I thought that I should be happy, that I should be challenged, that I should be fulfilled, find my niche, that's the fruit of his sacrifice. But he didn't, he couldn't give me that advice. I had to give it back to him. So I feel like in this book, like Celestial wants to be happy. And her family's like, what is this happy? Happy? What is happy? You don't get to be happy. You get to do what you're supposed to do. You get to do your duty. You don't, you don't get joy. And that's, so they can't give her that advice, but I have other people who give her that kind of advice because I, I wanted that advice to be out there in the world. You know, I, so in some ways, I think when I write books, there's a certain amount of wish fulfillment, you know, things that I wish had been told to me. Um, this morning you posted about having visited a prison and a program, um, and I think you did a radio program for yes. them. Um, I just, I, it intrigued me and I wondered if you would be willing to say anything about what you did today. Oh, it was a really excellent day. I went to the prison in Brixton, and I did an interview on national prison radio. They have 24-hour radio, 24-hour programming. Most of it is original programming, and it is in every, every prison cell has a built-in, like a radio built-in, so they can listen to all these programs. There's one that's books and culture. That's the one that I was interviewed on, and the person who interviewed me is an inmate. And it was an excellent interview, very, very prepared. And they have all kinds of shows. There's a show where you can write in, a request show where you can write in a song you want to be played for someone in prison. And you write a little letter and they read it on the air and play the, play the song. So different than prisons in the U.S. Like in the U.S. I have a pen pal and I wrote him a holiday card. And I put a little sticker on the back of it with a little Christmas tree or something. And they returned it to me with a sticker, with a stamp that said no stickers. Like prison in the U.S. is just designed to deprive people of every tiny comfort. Like even that, no stickers on your envelopes. So you have to write the letter on plain paper so that like not even foil lined envelopes, like just no frills. But there, there's even um, a restaurant called The Clink. Do you all know The Clink? And the, the, the inmates, they work in the restaurant to learn how to learn job skills. And it's kind of fancy. 
Like it's, I don't, know, I don't know the proper word for it, but you know, like vertical food. You know, you go to a nice restaurant and the food's kind of standing up. You know, they like stand the chicken up. Yeah, it's like vertical food. They're learning how to make vertical food. So when they get out, they can get jobs in nice restaurants. You know, they're not learning how to flip burgers and things like that. The library was quite. The library looked as good as some public school libraries in the U.S. And I was really inspired to see this. And, at, and it was still a prison. It's not like they were just you know, hanging out and sunbathing. It was still a prison, but it seemed to be a prison that was designed with um, an eye toward the future. Thank you. So you're here for the announcement of the Women's Prize for Fiction tomorrow night, for which you've been shortlisted. Um, I will say everybody I know, including me, who's read your book, not only wants you to win, but thinks you're going to win. But I know that probably just adds the to the great do pressure. Not think so. Well, the, I never. I don't, the bookies don't ever win. Feelings. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think. You know, I really don't think. Now you can. So tomorrow night, you can think back to this and tell me whether or not I'm right. I'm going to share a theory with you. I don't think that the bookies' favourite ever wins literary prizes because actually, I think it just pisses the judges off. <laughs> So if anything, I think it has a negative effect. I think someone in the industry, like the bookseller, should do some research on this subject to prove me right. But that is my theory. I like it. I like it. Yeah, let's hope it to be true. It only remains for me, I think, to say that this has been a great hour. And thank you very much. Can we give a huge round of applause? Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.